Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, would like to thank Charlie Kay and Casey Knopp for their ongoing support as patrons through Patreon. Hey everyone, this is Patrick, and I'm here to talk to you a little bit about an interview that aired a couple of weeks ago on Facebook Live with Hans Zimmer and Ben Walfish, the principal composers behind 2049's magisterial musical score. Uh, I wanted to talk about this a couple of weeks ago, but because we were in in the lead-up to the launch of the film, there wasn't very much space or time to really get to it, so hopefully we can unpack some of the things that they talked about here. Uh, And hopefully I can bring some of my own perspective as a composer to the conversation to um, perhaps illuminate some things that might have been unclear in the initial interview. But it's a really great piece, and we'll be playing some excerpts from it and doing a little bit of commentary, a little bit of background information. But before I begin, there's a musical motif that gets mentioned a couple of times in this, and I wanted to play that for you and just talk you through it for a second, just in case you're unclear about what exactly they're talking about. So a motif in music is a self-contained musical idea, that is then typically developed or played with throughout the body of a, of a work of music, or in this case, a film score, specifically. And the four notes in this are first heard, I believe, at least, about two minutes and 15 seconds into the first track on the soundtrack, which is called, fittingly, 2049. And the notes are F, G-flat, A-natural, and A-flat. And because it's functioning in the key of D-flat major, it's technically F, G-flat, B-double-flat, and A-flat, but... Don't worry about that too much. But these four notes reappear over and over again throughout the entire score of the film um, and are very prominent and very, um, they're very much uh, an element of cohesion for the score. So um, I'm going to play that and then we're going to go right into the interview. So here we go. So as I said, this interview aired via Facebook Live about two weeks ago, and the uh, interviewer is John Burlingame of Variety. Um, the interview also features Lauren Daigle, who we will not deal with in this because she contributed a song. She wasn't really part of the actual soundtrack, but um, there's some great stuff with her too, so I suggest you check it out. Um, and you can get there through the official Blade Runner Facebook page. Anyway, so the interview starts with uh, with John Burlingame asking them how they got involved with Blade Runner. And of course, they can't talk about the Johansson stuff that uh, we have discussed a little bit on this podcast, so they kind of start after that, and I understand why. Basically, uh, Hans Zimmer says that Joe Walker, who was the editor of the film and is a formally trained composer himself and a musician, um, approached them, and uh, Zimmer was actually about to leave for tour, um, and he said that it was actually the next day. I don't know if that's if he was being facetious or not, but within a couple of days, he was going to be leaving for this European and American tour, and so he said no. And then Joe Walker suggested that Ben Walfish was also going to be involved, and Zimmer changed his mind because they had had a really good working relationship after the score for Hidden Figures, which had released the previous year. So something interesting happened. The assembly cut wasn't actually ready yet at this time, and Walker and, I I would assume, Villeneuve hadn't actually seen it yet. So it was still being created, and so the first time that they screened it was actually in the room with Zimmer, Walfish, Walker, and Villeneuve, and maybe some other people. And Zimmer said that he was truly inspired by it and that he immediately went to the synthesizer because this was actually in his studio and he started uh, having what he called an impromptu jam session. So they uh, they basically had this like little, almost like a, they were a band. They started jamming on this and thinking about ideas and getting really excited and it seemed like right off the bat this was going to be a very fruitful collaboration. Walfish said that uh, right at the beginning he knew that this was going to have to be an instinctive project without too much forethought, that they were going to have to go into it basically trusting in their instincts and trying to see what happened. They were then asked, what did the film need, and what did they want to accomplish with it? And Benjamin Walfish said that the film needed two things, really, to be fully aware of the immense power of the Vangelis score and to find a different type of musical storytelling, to make sonic decisions that paid homage but still felt fresh and, as he said, bespoke to this project, and also to find the heart. He said that the movie really at its base is about human consciousness and soul, and if it was too complex, you would lose that, 
and you could lose the thread of the story. So that's where these four notes that I mentioned came from. He was thinking originally of the four DNA proteins, and he said Denny loved that idea and felt that that was the soul of the project, and they placed this motif at key points in the story to basically help Kay to navigate through this emergent maze that he finds himself in. Then we get some really interesting conversation about what they did to draw on the sound of Vangelis and to draw on his work. And we get some pretty cool stuff about some analog synthesizers. So I will let Hans Zimmer tell us about the CS80, and then I will pitch in with my own information. It's called a CS80, Yamaha yeah. CS80. It's huge. Which is really, uh, you know, and, it, and it's, it's quirky, and, it's, it's, uh, and, the, and the weird thing is it's, it, it, it reacts very much to the human that's right. playing it. Right. Like, uh, you know, for a while I ended up being... Ben's keyboard player. <laughs> you know, not that he can't play really well, but I play differently. Right. You know, and for me it was just like it was just like you know putting on an old pair of slippers again. I mean, this was just going right back into my world. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so it wasn't so much about using the sounds that he created as opposed to using the tools that he yeah, used the instruments. To, uh, the instruments. So before we go any further, just a little bit more about the Yamaha CS80, which is such a fascinating instrument, and because it's so integral to the score of 2019, and now we know 2049, we'll probably have an episode of its own at some point. The CS80 was a polyphonic analog synthesizer that came out in 1976. So what that means is that it allowed multiple voices to be played at the same time, and it allowed uh, for analog signal transmission, meaning that the instrument itself was generating some component of the sound that was coming out of it, as opposed to a digital synthesizer, which is translating um, data into sound externally. So the, the instrument itself was creating the sound that you heard on the recording, which sounds like a very minor difference, but it's actually it's, it's interesting because it's very limiting, because it's limited by the body of that instrument, by what it's able to do. But it's also very liberating because it forces you to make interesting choices based on the unique architectural restrictions of the circuitry and the architecture of that instrument. So uh, when it came out, it was gigantic and it was expensive. It was almost $7,000 in 1976, which is quite a lot of money. But it was also very expressive. It had uh, pressure-sensitive keys. Um, it was velocity sensitive, sensitive, so playing it felt like you were playing a piano. You were allowed, you were able to get um, expressiveness out of it by playing softly if you wanted to. So you could play it like it was an actual organic instrument, but produce electronic sounds with it. Uh, you could do, you could bend the pitch by use of a ribbon controller, um, and you can do a lot of really interesting things. So it, it felt more like a human voice or like a string orchestra than it did a, a synthesizer. And although it was sort of a failure because it, in its immediate release because it was so ungainly and so expensive, um, a lot of its success since then in terms of the cultural consciousness has come out of its extensive use by Vangelis and Chariots of Fire and especially Blade Runner, as well as uh, his work on Doctor Who. So uh, it went out of production in 1980, and it uh, is, has since become an extremely pricey, extremely rare and extremely difficult to work with collector's item that is still being used apparently on major Hollywood releases. So that's very exciting. Now, I think it's clear from his recent contributions to film scores such as Interstellar, um, Inception, etc., that Hans Zimmer really understands what makes a compelling contemporary science fiction soundtrack. And he has some neat points about it, which I will let him explain himself. Science fiction movies inherently have a sense of nostalgia about them. Mm. Think of a science fiction movie and tell me it doesn't have a sense of nostalgia about it, which seems to be a complete contradiction. Mm. And then, weirdly, bringing in these old, cranky, slightly sort of steam-driven machines um, seems to be, you know, the the, the, the sort of steampunk element Mm. of it seems Mm. to actually be... Uh, you know, it's 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 an organic quality that is evidently not organic mm. or man-made, mm. and it seems to work very well with the cinema, cinematography. Mm. Then they were asked about what it was like to work together collaboratively, and I actually just went through a similar process. I co-composed uh, an orchestral piece with uh, with a friend of mine last year, and it was an amazingly interesting process, and it sounds like they also had a, a really good time working with it. Hans Zimmer said that after some initial madness and creativity, he uh, left for that tour that I mentioned at the beginning, and Ben Walfish stayed and basically worked around the clock, and then Zimmer had a 10-day break between legs of the tour in Europe and America, 
and he basically came back, and then they worked really feverishly for that time period. He said that uh, that Ben Walfish is the one who came up with that four-note theme that I mentioned, and that Hans Zimmer, because he was had to be, by virtue of his touring schedule, a little bit more absent, took on more of a record producer role, so he gave iterative feedback. So, um, so Ben would play something, and then he would change it or modify it, or they would do something. Um, so it was, it was kind of a synthetic working process. Hans Zimmer says a good point. He says, it's not how well you play, it's how well you listen to each other. And I think that's something that I learned in my collaborative work as well, is that if you it, it, you have to treat it like there's two strengths instead of two competing strengths so that you know you can take the best elements of, of each collaborative partner and really bring it out in, in each other. And I think that's what it sounds like they were really going for with this. Um, so, for example, Ben would hear something in what Hans was playing on the synthesizer, and then he would build something new and different out of it, and then Hans would listen back to that and then build something on top of that, and before you know it, you'd have this cohesive whole that was very different from what it would have been had either of them been working independently, which I think shows that they had a really healthy collaborative spirit. So then Ben Walfish talks a little bit about things that people might want to be listening for in the film soundtrack. He says, we try to communicate a sense of a puzzle unfolding at the beginning. So one of the first things that you hear, there's this introductory moody soundscape, and then you hear these piano chords that are played nakedly. There's a lot of reverb on them, and they kind of sustain, and there's a little bit of transformation going on, but you hear the chords pretty distinctly, um, and you hear them at the beginning of the film, and then again at the end of the film. And he uh, had intended that to be sort of like a piece of a puzzle, so the audience heard that, and then the rest of the film was kind of coming back around to it and listening for those cues again. And he said that the audience should be constantly presented with powerful questions that only get resolved at the end, and that he was all about making sure that decisions that were being made were supportive ultimately to the enjoyment of the film, that if it became too much of its own logic puzzle or too filled with throwbacks or anachronisms or references, that it might lose the, the enjoyment that they were going for. And Hans Zimmer had a good point. He said that Denny and Joe Walker, again, the editor, are both very musical. Again, Joe is a conservatory-trained composer. And he said having four of them in a room together felt sort of like having a band, and that uh, Joe's cutting style is also very musical to the point where they could even uh, anticipate where changes were going to happen um, before they did. You know, he, he could. He talks about being able to tell that there's going to be a cut four seconds before it happens because he gets to know the rhythm of Joe's editing. And that in that way, he said that the editing became sort of a drummer. So they had this rhythmic component, and then on top of that, they were allowed to build this, this latticework, this score, that tied to the visuals in a very direct way. Lastly, they were asked how closely Denny wanted them to hew the Vangelis score. And I think this is a very good question. It was actually a fan-submitted question. Walfish says it was more of an attitude. The Vangelis score is grand. It takes its time. It uses reverb and delays. And, uh, and here's him talking a little bit more about that. It was very much about the sonic of Vangelis. And using the CS80 and, and other synthesizers helped, but it was, it was actually more of an attitude. So much of that score, it has this grand... Uh, it takes its time, like the movie does. And, there's, and, and actually the use of reverb and delays is almost as important as the, 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 the synths, uh, the, the sense of space. And I think there were times with Denis where, you know, because we have all these new sounds, and, you know, we try something because it's just it's so vivid and, and, you know, with these incredible visuals. And he said, no, 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 let's bring it back. Bring it back to the 80s. You know, there was a sort of uh, truth to that uh, analog uh, sound in, in terms of the storytelling. Hans Zimmer said that when they got together in that room and they screened the assembly cut for the first time, just the act of him sitting at the keyboard and having an immediate reaction to it that felt aligned with what Denny was going for aesthetically gave Denny the confidence that they wouldn't really need much guidance, that it was already what he was looking for, and that they didn't want to do a parody of the original, but they wanted to find the soul of it, and they wanted to sort of forget thinking of it as a, as a synth score and thinking of it as an orchestral score that was being created with the synthesizer. So the aesthetic would bleed between those two, and it wouldn't feel like it was just this sort of idiomatic synth thing. It would feel like a like a, a score that was written in the heart and soul of the original score for a new film in a new time with um, new expectations from the audience that uh, would still harken back in very direct ways, but wouldn't be a copy or a, uh, a parody of it, as he said. And Walfish says that it was the first time he had been involved with that synth-heavy of a score before, and he took it as a challenge to create the same impact as you'd have with a symphony orchestra. 
even though they weren't using one. I do have to say that it, I can hear pretty clearly um, symphonic instruments throughout the soundtrack, uh, and especially a, a very large choir. It sounds like there's a male choir performing what we call micropolyphony, which you can hear a lot of on the 2001 A Space Odyssey music that, uh, that Ligeti supplied. Um, and we'll talk about that in another episode. But it seems like there were some um, instrumentalists and singers in these sessions as well. But... Um, the the it, I mean it's unquestionable that the primary driving force behind this is the synth is especially the CS80 and another synthesizer that a friend of Hans Zimmer's created called the Zebra, which um, it was digital but um, was able to re- recreate pretty similar sounds to the CS80 and allowed them to kind of bridge the contemporary and the old together. Lastly, there's a to my mind a pretty big revelation that comes up in the interview where somebody asks, how long did it actually take to create the score? And we find out not only how long it took, but when it happened, which was the middle of April through the end of July. So this year, middle of April through the end of July. So uh, that's a nice little clue for the for where they came into the process and how far along Johansson's music might have been, which, again, I would love to hear because I have tremendous respect for him as a composer. I think he's really good and really interesting, and, uh, and I bet he came up with some really cool stuff. But I have to say, what we got was interesting and it was very effective dramatically. It was beautifully rendered for the environment of, a, of an IMAX theater. It felt very full. Um, and briefly, something interesting that came up in the interview as well is Zimmer says that with organic, uh, sorry, with analog synthesizers, you don't get very much signal distortion. Uh, you don't get too much of this sort of uh, digitized sound that you get with digital synthesizers when they're played over large sound systems. So in some ways, using that analog old school synth to create these booming soundscapes on these massive IMAX sound systems is probably partly why the score sounds so powerful and so full-fledged and so elemental, magisterial. So anyway, there's a little bit of a background, and uh, next we're going to hear from Ryan, who uh, sat, who got some great uh, interview audio and ideas from a conversation that Ryan Johnson, who is a name very much in the news these days, uh, had with uh, the creators of 2049. So I hope you enjoy it. guys this is ryan co-host of shoulder over ryan the blade runner podcast and i am just doing a quick little mini episode of uh what, we're, what i'm going to do is just play some clips and um talk a little bit about a recent interview that uh ryan johnson did with denny villeneuve ryan johnson is the director and writer of the upcoming star wars um star wars episode 8 the last jedi uh, movie I wasn't really that actually excited about up until the recent trailer. I thought the first trailer was kind of bland. Um, wasn't that interesting. The second trailer is like, oh, I'm totally on board with this. But uh, so Ryan Johnson, he's also directed uh, Looper, which is a really good sci-fi time travel film, um, and he's done some other ones, uh, other films as well. But he um, he. Uh, does an interview with Denny Villeneuve, who directed Blade Runner 2049, um, among uh, other great films. And um, first part of the interview, uh, he just asked uh, Denny Villeneuve how he got involved with uh, Blade Runner, or yeah, how he uh, got involved, how he became the director of Blade Runner 2049. So I'm going to play that really quick for you. I want to start with um, the most uh, boring, ordinary first Q&A question, but I am actually curious. How did you end up directing a Blade Runner movie? How did how did it all start? Yeah, the, coming from you. Okay. <laughs> no, no. The, the thing is, um, I, uh, uh, the project was written by and for Ridley Scott, and the thing is that um, uh, Ridley had a lot of things on his uh, cooking in the same time, and uh, and uh, Harrison Ford uh, was like. Uh, Anxious to start the project, project, and so they, they uh, Ridley was working on uh, finishing the Martian, going on into uh, Alien Covenant, and so they, they decided uh, the producer and Ridley decided to to reach for someone else, and then uh, I had made a movie previously with Arkan called Prisoners, 
and we had a great experience together. So they, uh, to my great, great surprise, they approached me. They, uh, I remember Andrew Kosova sent me uh, a message saying, I need to meet you in a place where nobody will see us. <laughs> and that was the, the beginning of that insane adventure of uh, where secret will be. Uh, uh, um, and uh, I met him and he put an envelope in front of me and he said, <laughs> and it was written in Queensboro. On, on, on it, and I said, Queensboro doesn't exist. And I was like, <laughs> and it's this, he said, this Blade Runner project. And, and I was really moved that, uh, I was honestly, sincerely moved that, yeah, they had that uh, amount of trust in me. I mean, that uh, honestly it was by far one of the most beautiful compliments I ever received. And uh, then I didn't sleep for, I didn't sleep for uh, two months. Thinking, <laughs> do I do it or not? Because, uh, Two months? No, no, but it took me a long time before I said yes because I, I, uh, there were several things. I was finishing Sicario at the time. I was supposed to do Arrival. There were some scheduled conflicts. And, and uh, I wasn't sure. Uh, I mean, what convinced me was the screenplay, but first I had to make sure that I feel that I would be able to do it. And I had to make peace with the idea that I could be damned forever by the cinematic community for you know, that uh, I, 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 was I can't imagine I can't imagine. I, 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 yeah, it's like uh, I could be crucified by uh, so I, I, I had to make peace with the idea that if I was doing this project it would be just by pure love for the first movie that is a very important movie for me and that uh, I will do it just as a pure artistic gesture not waiting for any reward or accolades or just trying to make it for the act of cinema itself which is the way ryan gosling approached it that's why we, we right from the start we say okay our chances of success are insanely small so let's just embrace that and yeah. find back our freedom you know <laughs> yeah so that was a little bit about how villeneuve got involved with it i was surprised he waited two months um to decide if he wanted to do the picture or not that's usually you know well i guess maybe that's not a long time it seems like a long time for a director to make a decision you know for the studio to wait on him but for a director like Denis Villeneuve I mean I would wait <laughs> I would wait as long as it takes for him to decide to jump on board and uh you know he's a very seems like a very humble guy um and he realized that his chances of success for this film were very small, um, but I think he did a fantastic job, and uh, it's really one of the best films of the year, in my opinion. Um, another in interesting part of the interview uh, was where he talked about Harrison's, Harrison Ford's involvement with uh, Blade Runner 2049, so I'm going to play a quick clip of that. That's cool. Um, uh, the performances in the movie are, are beautiful, and I mean, obviously... I, I, Harrison Ford's performance in this is is absolutely gorgeous. Um, and if you grew up loving Blade Runner and reading everything you could about it, you I, I, I just know from all of that you you come to get this image in your head of the original film being a process that was very difficult, and that he, you know, uh, there's famous stories I know just from film mythology about you know him not having a great time doing it. Um, which I don't know could be true, could be not. But how, what was your experience in terms of he was obviously he came to you, so he was already already on board with it. What was your experience working? But the thing is that uh, it was a different experience, really. Uh, when he did the the first one, I think was struggling with producers. You know, he had to fight the system, and uh, me, uh, I was protected by the producers. So I, I, I had a nice uh, because they were they are friends basically. They, so uh, um, that's it. That uh, the, and Harrison. Well, it, for me, it was one of the toughest thing to bring back his character, to bring back a character that is so iconic, and that. Uh, so I, right from the start, I, I said to him, "I need to do this with you. I will not. I need you. I need your input. You created that character. I would love, if possible, if you could uh, do this with me. Uh, not come on set and." Uh, and and I think he was really uh, excited uh, about the idea of uh, yeah, the process of collaboration. And um, no, it was uh, what moves me uh, moved me about Harrison Ford is that uh, several things. 
but one of them is that his passion about filmmaking is totally in intact. He is like uh, every day on set, like if it was a second movie, you know, it's like he, he, he loves the, the, to work, he loves the, the filmmaking process deeply. And, uh, and I mean, at 5 a.m. In, uh, in the gigantic pool, cold outside he was the one with the highest spirit you know cheering up everybody i mean it's very moving to see him uh you know i'll know when your your main cast is very very positive and uh it transformed the atmosphere the atmosphere on set a lot yeah so. so that was pretty surprising to hear i mean i uh i always see harrison at least in interviews um kind of grumpy and i don't know kind of of demure is the right word just kind of i don't know like he like he just doesn't care like i mean he's pretty much a straight shooter um i just wouldn't expect him to be kind of like this excited guy on set who's really uh inspiring people and getting people excited um so that was really cool to hear that from from uh villeneuve and kind of puts uh Harrison Ford, I mean, I've always been a huge Harrison Ford fan, but uh, it kind of puts him in a little bit of a new light to me, a more positive light. Um, uh, seems like he'd be a great guy to work with. I've, I've actually never heard anyone say anything bad about Harrison Ford, at least in any anything, uh, I guess obviously not, probably not an interview, but at least any behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, you know, any actor saying, oh, I just didn't like working with him or... He just, uh, you know, I think people really like Harrison Ford, and um, yeah, it sounds uh, sounds like he was a great influence on the set. Um, There's some more parts of the interview um, that are also really interesting. The whole interview is really interesting. Uh, it's just great getting two uh, two great directors together, just talking about talking about movies. I mean, um, I just think it's awesome. Um, but uh, you know, there's um, more, uh, more the beginning part of the interview, um, Villeneuve was talking about how, you know, his, his whole plan for the f film is just to kind of stay grounded, you know, st have the roots of the original, um, but, uh, at the same time, as R Ryan Johnson pointed out, you know, he doesn't imitate the original, he, he makes it his own thing, um, Another th cool thing was that they used a lot of sets, a lot of built sets, and they try to do as little CGI as possible. There is a lot of CGI in the film, but uh, but he did try to uh, try to keep that to a minimum, um, and I just think that's great. And I hope movies uh, kind of go back to that. There's just so many movies that are just um, it's just CGI porn. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just. Uh, excuse me, just a ton of, um, it's all green screen, you know, uh, it's all, you know, a couple live actors in front of green screens, and, um, sometimes there's, it can be entertaining, but for the most part, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of tired of it, so it's great that, uh, you know, Villeneuve kind of went a little bit more old school, um, went back to more basics and used, you know, actual sets and, uh, things like that. Um, and, and towards the end, um, Ryan Johnson talks to Denny Villeneuve about the sound design for the film, um, and on, you know, besides the, the visuals were amazing in this movie, but honestly, the sound was second to none. I've never, um, like Ryan Johnson said, I, I don't think I've heard, seen a movie with such great sound in it for a long time and maybe never this good it was just uh incredibly well done and Villeneuve you know was very thankful for that because he he said he wanted the sound to be um to be top notch and you know the sound design and it was uh you know and even the music I mean the music and the sound together was just uh it was just a, a treat um it was just pure bliss um so it was a it's a really great interview. Um, you can check it out on SoundCloud. Um, there's a, the uh, it's called the Director's Cut is the SoundCloud um, page, and it's episode 95, entitled Blade Runner 2049 with Denny Villeneuve and Ryan Johnson. Uh, it's about a half hour interview, and uh, just really interesting. I would highly recommend it. 
Um, so yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot for your time, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining uh, Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This segment is our final segment in this episode, and today I am joined by Matt. Can I? Can you pronounce your last name? It's Hemingway. Hemingway, Hemingway. like Hemingway, but Hemingway. Thank you, yeah. Matt, for coming on. And Matt is—it's kind of a random. I, I texted some of the people through Facebook who went to the the um, Q and A with Sean Young, and. Matt answered, and he's saying, "Hey, I I do this for a living, sort of." You you said, and you had very specific outlines of uh, what they talked about and things that were a revelation to me. So I'm just kind of introducing Matt today on the show. Uh, he's uh, a very special guest, and also talking about things that we don't know anything about. So we're really excited. And again, Matt, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. And it's uh, a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And so before we get into the Q&A and everything else, I, I want to ask you about Blade Runner. What's your relationship to it? Oh, I, I have a very uh, special and I guess intimate relationship with Blade Runner. It, um, in a lot of ways, it's a movie that brought together my group of friends when I first went to college uh, back, at, back at Arizona State. Um, I was taking the intro to film course, and uh, one of our first assignments was to watch... Blade Runner. And I'd never seen it. Um, but an acquaintance of mine happened to own it. And uh, through that whole process, this, this group of people, there's probably six, six to eight of us, we all sat down on, on our dorm room floor, you know, um, watching this movie. And uh, it was, gosh, it was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen, you know. And um, that, that introduced me to, to uh, not only many of my, uh, who'd become close friends, but to Philip K. Dick, uh, who's an author I'm, I'm very much a fan of to this day. Um, yeah. That's awesome. And was Blade Runner, when you first viewed it, was it a slow burn for you? Was it something where you have to, a few days later, you're like, wow, that was pretty awesome. Where you're like, oh, I don't know, I need to see it again. It, yeah, it was a slow burn. It was, um, I'd been warned. I'd been warned that it's it's a it's a very different kind of movie, mm-hmm. and it's a very slow a very slow movie to begin with. Um, so that that helped. I, I had my expectations set going into it. I knew this wasn't going to be a a, a, a thrill a minute uh, experience, you know, from the get go. Um, but but yeah yeah, there were just it's it's one of those movies that has moments that that stick with you. And um, they, uh, they, they, they don't leave, you know. That's awesome. Do you have a favorite moment in the film? <sighs> or one of few? Well, well, there's, yeah, there's, there's a bunch, of course. Um, I, I hesitate to say it because it's, it's, well, it's in the name of your podcast, but the Tears and Rain speech, Roy Batty, Rutger Hauer's uh, mm-hmm. final moments are, are, well, incredibly beautiful, incredibly mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So I find favorite totally, and I find uh, the whole experience of Blade Runner, and as we move into twenty forty nine, um, it's a very spiritual, lyrical, moving experience. It's 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 very cerebral. It's not this. It's unlike any other. It's almost like being in church. It's and that's kind of dramatic, but it that's what I take away from it. I, I leave it, I leave the film every time I see it thinking differently, th- uh, recontextualizing things in my own per- personal life. Why are we here? What are we here for? Life is precious. We need to remember that life is precious um, because everyone doesn't get to live as long as we do. Just kind of fundamental things um, in the middle of this grand, gorgeous world that we've never seen before. Right, right, right. No, they're, they're incredibly spiritual and deeply existential questions they're the, they're the questions at the at the core not only of all science fiction but all uh, i'd be so bold as to say the humanities in general the mm-hmm. questions of what what is real and what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. 
And uh, those are questions that were not only core to uh, Philip K. Dick's work, but I believe they're some of the most fundamental uh, human questions that, that there are. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And what I have discovered, certainly with 2049, it dives even deeper into the idea that we can deem a certain group of people because they're different as subservient. And what does that yeah. mean? What does that say about who we are? Um, these very grand questions um, yeah. that 2049 asks even deeper than the original, where the original was a lot about Deckard and him kind of being awoken to awoken by love into a, a better life, really, that, hey, you need to live and not just survive and not just go your daily thing. Deckard, you know, it was a very, it's really Deckard's journey. Whereas 2049, it's certainly Officer K's journey, but it's the journey of what do we, what do we become as a society when we deem certain people as unfit? because we don't like certain things about them or whatever. At any rate, um, those are the grand questions of Blade Runner and the sequel that I, I am continually processing. So moving into Blade Runner 2049, tell me a little bit about your, were you excited by it? Were you skeptical like everybody else as I was? What do you think? I was, I was very skeptical. I was very skeptical. I, uh, um, I didn't dare to, to, to hope, um, but but uh, nevertheless, I, I I really wanted to give it uh, a fair shake, of course. Um, you know, I've, it's something I've been trying to do a lot more lately. Um, there are certain filmmakers that I know, you know, even if <laughs> even if they're getting critically panned, or even if they're uh, you know if they're if they're taking a, a terrible trajectory, or or um, you know. Their last few films haven't haven't been particularly good. I'm not. I'm, I'm speaking in the general here, uh, of course. But there, there's a short list of filmmakers that I will go see their their movie, and I know I will go see their movie no matter what. And uh, for me, Ridley Scott is certainly very high on that list. Uh, so for me, if I if I know that if I know that about a film, if I know that about that about a filmmaker, um, I personally have come to the point where I. I really, I don't see, frankly speaking, and I'm, I'm just speaking uh, to my own personal experience. I know that there are many different opinions on this, and I, I respect that, of course. Um, but for me, there seems to be very little reason for me to, to you know, uh, watch every single one of the trailers that comes out or, you know, scour the internet for, for leaked images or, or on-set photographs or those sorts of things. Um, I, whenever, and as much as possible, and I know those are big caveats, uh, but whenever possible and, when, and as much as possible, I want to allow the filmmaker or the filmmakers, the, the, uh, the, the whole community, creative community behind the project to, to show the thing um, in and of itself without any other uh, elements obscuring or, or, um, or, or spoiling certain, certain elements, you know? Um, so, so that's all to say, that's all to say, I went into watching uh, Blade Runner 2049 without having watched any trailers. Wow. And uh, the first time I saw the poster was when I was, in the theater, actually, at the Alamo Draft House here in Austin, I was like, "Well, all right, I guess, I guess Harrison Ford's up there." Uh, so, so you know, I mean, again, there comes a point where there's only so much that's possible. You, I, I couldn't mar be marched blindfolded into the theater, but uh, as close as possible, I, I, I aimed for that, and ah, I don't regret it at all. Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> that was it was just. What what a revelation to to see that that opening those opening titles and uh, go into the actual uh, go into the actual movie that way it was um, I yeah I was I was just absolutely blown away uh, visually just so stunning uh, Deacons did an amazing job of staying true to Cronenworth's spirit with the with the that amazing noiry smoke and haze and fog and 
and just the, the, the structure and the weight of the light um, and, and the design as well was absolutely incredible. Uh, I had the opportunity in Arizona to, to see a, a conversation, uh, another Q&A with Sid Mead. Oh, wow. And yeah, that, that, was, that was really cool. I had no idea prior to that, that Q&A just how much of an influence he had on the on the look of, of basically the the 1960s and and their idea of, of of what the future will look like you know um and um, uh, yeah this this film just visually from beginning to end you can tell there's just so much love and care that was poured into the look mm-hmm. and um yeah yeah so so frankly, the first time watching it, um, I, I, I was just I was just so blown away by everything that was happening visually. I didn't really get a chance to to focus as much on the narrative uh, as I as I maybe would have liked. So I, I got a chance to revisit it, and well, I watched it a second time um, during that Sean Young Q and A, um, and uh, got more of a chance to appreciate um, the narrative that was happening and this 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 grand story of. Uh, this master enslaved dichotomy that you you uh, alluded to earlier. Yeah. So let's go into that. Uh, one of the reasons why I contacted Matt, I looked to see who was interested in the event for the Q and A for Sean Young. Obviously, I couldn't uh, I couldn't be there. I live in California, but as a podcast, uh, the team on the podcast, we were like, "What is going on? We need to know." And we thought it was going to be live because it said live, but I just think it meant live as in you're there live. Um, so it wasn't broadcast, but, uh, there's a lot of talk and controversy around her involvement in, um, 2049. Was she in it? Was she there? Was she not there? And the reason why, one of the, the big reasons why you're on here today is to kind of discuss that. And can you talk about kind of the lead up, how you heard about the Q and A and kind of everything that played into that? That's a funny thing because I I really I really stumbled across it. I I saw it pop up as many things do as a as a um, upcoming event in my Facebook feed, right? Um, and I was like, that's weird. I haven't seen this promoted anywhere. But a couple of my friends had said they were interested in going. Uh, didn't end up attending, but um, so I I decided I'd um, I'd yeah hit the hit the road early Saturday morning. And arrive uh, at the theater there. It was 11:15 a.m. Uh, this screening started uh, here again at the, the Austin Alamo Draft House, um, which I've been to, and it's awesome. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I really ought to say um, that Q and A couldn't have happened without obviously Sean Young, to whom I'm very grateful that she came out and took the time to speak to us. But also the Alamo Draft House. They've done some. Amazing work. They do incredible programming, and the the entire concept of of you know a a modern adult uh, cinema experience uh, with with food and drink uh, to boot. Uh, it's 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 you know um, it's just a, a a real good thing for the cinema, and I'm glad I'm glad they're here. And uh, it, mm-hmm. it's uh, definitely a big a big selling point to to me about Austin. Although I know that they are all over now. Are there any in, in California? I, I can't recall. They're about to open a couple. Um, I don't okay. know if they're open yet, but I know in Los Angeles, they're opening at least one or two. But again, speaking about the Alma draft house and the actual, the actual screening, it's, it's funny. I, I spoke to the, the interviewer after the, um, the interview itself at the, the very end of the event. And he said that they had actually struggled to try and find a way to to promote this because just saying that the event was happening is is kind of uh, going back to our conversation about spoilers. Kind of a big spoiler in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sean Young's involvement wasn't wasn't uh, well. It was kept a secret, of course, up until the the, the very last minute. And like you said, she she wasn't uh, really very much in in that behind the scenes book at all. So it's it's interesting. I. I guess um, you probably know more about this than I do, but it seems as though, for whatever reason, they worked very hard to kind of keep this as much as possible a, a, a surprise or, or a secret or, or or something that would genuinely surprise and delight mm-hmm. uh, perhaps the fans. So, so I can only speculate as to the reason why, but um, 
at the Alamo uh, sought to, to, to honor that. And uh, they didn't really promote this, this event very much at all. Nevertheless, it was a really full um, uh, theater, probably 90% full. Um, they definitely, um, the word got out, the word got out for sure. And people were so excited to, I mean, the hands and the questions kept coming up. There, there wasn't enough time to, to answer them all, but she stayed maybe, it was maybe 40 minutes if I had to guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. After, after the screening. That's awesome. So can we talk about it a little bit? Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. How did that, how did that unfold? And how did, did, talk about her involvement in 2049. You're kind of the first reveal to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see. She talked a lot about both the original film and also 2049. Kind of questions fell into those, those two different camps. And uh, that's one of the big things that uh, the interviewer asked her about straight away was her involvement in the film. Um, So the way she told it, she was contacted, I think, roughly a year before principal photography uh, in November, asking about her involvement. And, and uh, in her estimation, she felt that it was kind of, kind of late, uh, kind of a, a late notice. But she, you know, she said, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in, in helping out. Um, um, it's, it's, it's funny. It seems as though the, um, the production team and um, specifically... I think, I think she said the, the president or, or, or a member of Alcon Entertainment seemed uh, very keen to make sure she was happy. Um, they didn't want any problems. And uh, she thought maybe maybe they seemed a little bit over keen on that. Maybe they, they were worried that she'd be difficult to work with. Um, but um, they, they did a couple things. They did a couple things. Um, she worked with the VFX team and that team took three-dimensional scans of her whole head. We had her pull all sorts of, of uh, different faces in order to uh, get the, the reference looks mm-hmm. uh, for, the, um, for the effect. Um, and she also, as you mentioned, was flown out to the uh, Budapest, yes, mm-hmm. set in Hungary um, and watched that incredible scene uh, there at... Um, at the Wallace Industries uh, headquarters, um, so so she was there. Uh, from the way she was talking, it seemed as though maybe she were she were in the video village, kind of watching things unfold. Um, she was just stunned and blown away by the the look uh, of that of that scene and the the reflections that those golden reflections on the walls. She she said that that's that's not the effects. She said that's not the effects. That was all. That was all. That was all. That was all natural light. That was all. That was all practical, real, proper light, practical light. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 Um, uh, <laughs> it wasn't available light. It was the light that was available on the truck. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, she said there were great big lighting arrays that were hung from the ceiling. Um, and she looked up at those and she, she leaned over to, to Roger, uh, Roger Deakins. And she said, you're, you're good, uh, at one point. So, so yeah, yeah, she was, yeah, it, by all accounts, it, it seemed as though she were really happy about, about, um, about that, that, uh, that part of the experience for sure. So the next question would be, was she ever in costume? Unfortunately, no one asked that specifically. No one asked that specifically. Um, uh, this, I suppose, goes into the realm of speculation. But but seeing as as you know, she she were asked by the interviewer about her involvement. I imagine that if if she were to have gotten into costume for for this role for twenty forty nine, she she probably she she probably would have mentioned that. Um, so, but, but again, that's wild speculation and I don't know, I don't know, I don't know for sure, uh, what her exact, um, participation, 
how far it extended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How far into depth did she go about her time there? Like how many, how long was she there? Um, did she talk about kind of her days and she, was she watching scenes unfold or was she a, a guest or was she there to oversee a certain scene? Mm-hmm. She, um, she was only given the pages, only given the pages for that particular scene. Uh, so there, even, even at that point, there was a lot of secrecy. Uh, so that was the only scene that, that she saw, she witnessed. Um, uh, she didn't get a chance to, to see any other scenes that were, were being shot. Um, there was something really funny, really funny that, that happened on set though. Um, they were, they were shooting the scene, of course. Um, and, the um, the line, um, I, seeing seeing the first time it like really it, it, it got me you know the um it's uh ah it's it's um a really powerful line harrison says to neander um her eyes were green her eyes were green and of course love steps in and and, and shoots her which is um uh, yeah <laughs> ah, um but during the during the course of the production, she said that both she and Harrison they leaned over they leaned over to Denis and they said, you know, you know, Rachel's eyes were brown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the original film, Rachel's eyes were brown, and 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 she said that, yeah, if I remember correctly, she said that Denis seemed a little shocked by that, and um, and uh, a little surprised. She thought that maybe, well, the the versions he'd seen and maybe the different grades uh, that that he'd seen of the of the work printer of the film. I genuinely thought, uh, it seemed to her at least, that uh, that the character's eyes were green. So, so that um, she said. So, I guess there's a. She called it a small error. Um, but personally, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just such a that's it's such an interesting wrinkle and an interesting question. Um, Especially, especially because it's, it's such a powerful and important line, an important moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems, again, personally, unlikely that that something like that would be an error, right? Um, or or wouldn't be thought about um, or or explored by the um, well by 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 Denis, especially. Yeah, especially yeah. because in the original, there are scenes after she takes her hair down and she looks like they're looking out a window or they're really close together and you see that strange android glow in her eyes. That, yeah. that you get to see her eyes and I've never, I never thought about Rachel's eyes specifically, but I never certainly got the opinion that they were green. However, in 2049, the first eye we see that opens is green. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very interesting take on Rachel. Um, but... You know, that scene, and again, spoilers for anyone. You know, this is a very spoiler-filled segment. Um, at the end, Towards the end of the film, Harrison Ford's character of Rick Deckard is brought into Neander Wallace's headquarters, office, whatever that gorgeous room is, and he is being threatened. Well, they want information from him, and if they, you know, and they're kind of threatening him, but then Neander then says, well, I also have good things, and then in that moment... Yeah. Uh, after we've heard conversations with Rachel's from 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 the past, all of a sudden the Rachel from the past that you see in the original Blade Runner steps out in costume, and it's a magical, disturbing, beautiful, disturbing scene. <laughs> um, right, and right. The questions that we've had, um, and I read this in the Future Noir book, which was just updated recently, and I read this a couple months ago. They said, you know, it leaked that Sean Young had flown to Budapest for three days to film scenes. And so everyone was like, oh, wow, she's probably in this film. Um, so the questions have been, who was that in costume? Was that Sean Young? Was that digital? You know, it looked... There, there's some strange strangeness to the face. As you get closer to her face and you get into it, it looks weird. She looks different. But right when right. you see her, she looks like the same Rachel that we know. Um, so it's a very powerful scene. Uh, the film would not be the same without that scene at the end. It's very... Uh, it kind of ties everything together and then flips everything on his head. Um, so that's kind of the scene that we're just, that's in discussion right now. Um, that's mysterious as well. And I like that they're playing the mystery. Um, how did that scene play out for you personally? 
it it was well i think you said it two or three times there the word disturbing and uh, disturbing was right um it's i think a <laughs> a strange and, and troubling and um well i i think it's a very very philip k dickian kind of mm -hmm. um uh reality that we find ourselves in in which um um in, in just the last couple of years now we, we have so many performers and so many performances that that are being virtually recreated uh and, and created from the ground up completely digitally um rogue one of course is is the, the really big example with with both cushing and uh, uh and um and, and princess leia um um, brought back, brought back from the, from, from, from beyond, right. yeah. uh, now, um, uh, uh, Carrie Fisher, of course, just, just, uh, incredibly, um, eerie, eerie, uncanny, of course, is the, is the word that's, that's used a lot, the, the, the approaching of the, of the uncanny valley, mm -hmm. right? And uh, for me, we, we haven't crossed it, and I don't know if we ever will. There is just something that's off and, and, and disturbing about, about seeing these, these, these characters brought back to life. You know, these are, these are zombies. These are corpses reanimated. And uh, however, however, in this particular film, again, again, with all of, these, all of these questions at the core of the original Blade Runner and of, of this film, what is, what is real? Uh, what does it mean to be human? Um, it 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 worked in this this strange and disturbing way um, because because these are these are the questions that that come to mind when whenever I do see um, Peter Cushing's face or whenever I do see um, uh, uh, Carrie Fisher's face is that you know these these people this 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 is this seems dangerous uh dangerous these are these are dangerous grounds that uh that we we dare to walk on here um but but of course in the context of blade runner those are like how appropriate uh mm -hmm. to, to be confronted with that that squirmy nature of that of that kind of gross and sticky question um um they're they're it's it's um i i feel it, i don't think it's it's an over exaggeration to say masterfully done mm -hmm. that that these the, the the filmmakers denis and the and, and the writers as well they're 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 playing with with our emotions and on 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 several different levels of analysis it's like it's it, in some ways someone mentioned this before the scene with Deckard is almost like us, the audience. We're being given this new thing, and what do we think about it? It's a new Blade Runner, and it looks like the old one a little bit. It kind of feels like it, but there's a difference there, and what do we feel about that? Um, that's kind of, we're being presented, that's kind of the dual narrative in some small ways, certainly in that scene. But, of course, the uh, the larger pictures are, are grand questions um, about right. life and about the way we treat people and... Um, to kind of get back to uh, an earlier point, uh, and I, this is something I've been talking about, where there's this scene where Kay meets Love, and uh, she introduces her herself with a name, and he goes, "Wow, he named you!" And he goes, "You must yeah. be special." And I, I, and I, and then later on they're talking and they're listening to the audio of uh, Ra Rachel and Deckard, and and Love goes. I must don't you love getting those questions, those personal questions? Yeah, it it makes, is invigorating. Yes, personal questions. Yes, yeah. it makes you feel desired. Um, and I thought, what you could use that dialogue with African American people, and it would turn itself on its head. We would look at it in a very different light. It's very biting and visceral dialogue um, that these people don't feel human because they've made not to be, even though they mirror us in many ways because of a certain law they are deemed as not human um and so you can see it in their performance they're demure okay yes ma'am yes ma'am okay very subservient um and they have been designed to not go outside those expectations and then there's computers like that 
series of questions that Kay has asked. We set your baseline. Blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one step. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain playing with cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. It's almost like a reverse void contest. We're like, okay, okay, he's he's on baseline, he's good, he's good, he's subservient still. Um, it's very disturbing, very disturbing, um, in the way that they're treated by other people who are are human, who seem kind of despicable, but they're not as despicable as a replicant, um, who could tear them limb from limb, which is interesting. Um, anyways, those are the kind of philosophical questions that I ponder as, uh, uh, an audience member, as someone who is multi, from, from different races, uh, my parents and, uh, part of a, you know, an LGBT community and all that stuff. What does it mean yeah. to be different? How does it feel to be different? How does it feel to be different? Because people say you're different. That's the questions that good science fiction asks. And, um, Ooh. Uh, I think that's the question brilliant science fiction asks. Um, it's it's a reflection of who we are in some ways. It's a reflection of where our, our society might be headed and where it is. Um, at any rate, my apologies. I waxed poetic for a little bit, or I waxed <laughs> I waxed philosophical for a minute. Um, but this is that's why right. I love this is why I love Blade Runner. This is why I'm here. Um, so it's a yeah. great gateway to to open these questions, and it it, it really puts it in the the public sphere in a way that, you know, a philosophical treatise won't, won't be in the public sphere, but, uh, but, but these things, they're, they're, they're beautiful and they're, they're, they're wonderful ways to, to introduce, uh, these questions and, um, and get, get people thinking critically about these questions and, and seek, seek out additional resources to, to, to further aid a person's understanding, um, or or uh, maybe sharpen 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 the if not the answer the the question mm -hmm. and the 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 uh, the complexities of the of the question. Um, again, what is what is real? What is human? Your your discussion of uh, marginalized groups. That's uh, I that. Oh, there's an additional piece, an additional layer that that is. Um, well, I I I feel I I don't have much to to speak to. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't I haven't given given that that lens the the proper thinking that I I want to um, uh, to give it before before speaking on it um, because that. Well, yeah, and just and just speaking to you, that's 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 raised even even more questions and more lenses and more more ways to to approach the text of the film, and uh, it's that's that I think is is a testament to to a piece of great art is that it it can serve as 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 a text under any any variety, any huge number of of lenses and readings. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, in closing, what what's your takeaway from meeting Sean Young, uh, a pseudo meeting her? You're in the sharing the same space with her and all of those people. Um, how do you, how do you, how does it impact your your engagement with both films now? It's always interesting to when you meet someone who has kind of part of your mythology as as a human. You know, I was at um, Star Wars celebration in 2015 and there was i was in the same room with carrie fisher mark hamill uh what's his harrison ford wasn't there but it was weird to meet these people in person that yeah. are a part of your human mythology they've been in your right. life all of your lives and to yeah. share that space with them it um it's it's a magical thing um and i don't mean that at all in a dramatic way it's absolutely magical yeah. just to have yeah. them manifest in front of you right for me, I think the greatest resonance and the greatest 
the greatest additional layer that that Q and A has given me is is a real sense of the the tragedy of the of the well the 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 bright beautiful rise and 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 fall of of um, uh, and and again I emphasize the word tragedy of of um, of of Sean Young's work and 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 how that mirrors. Rachel, um, mm-hmm. the the bright, beautiful, uh, short lives of a replicant, or 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 of um, of 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 the Rachel replicant um, specifically. Um, getting a chance to to really meet Sean Young or see her speak uh, for the first time in person, uh, it it it's shocking just how lively and and energetic and vivacious and and sharp she is like just astonishingly astonishingly sharp and 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 bright and uh and and funny and clever and uh it's for me it really underscores the tragedy and um the unfortunate the unfortunate reality that we have a 2049 in which rachel is not only dead but but sean young has does not have nearly the presence um, as as uh, some of the other actors in this film. I, I suppose Harrison Harrison Ford, uh, in in particular, for for instance. However, the ghost of of Rachel, you feel her throughout the whole film. This yeah. woman who had this child. She's the MacGuffin. She's the she's the the uh, the mythology in the film. Who is this woman? Where is this child? Um, I felt Rachel's presence, of course, profoundly in the original, but this film, I almost was suffocated by her presence in the best possible way. Like, she became godlike. Um, she became the first of her species to be able to procreate. Um, and I, I continue to process that. To me, that's one of the, you know, she became the most powerful thing among men, which is she could reproduce, which takes the power away from man. Um, and uh, yeah, that's something I will continue to process as I see it again. Um, her her soul and her her mythology and this legacy that she's left um, of this child that she had. Yes, yes. No, it's that's a it's a mythological story that has has deep significance. You know, the 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 death and and the rebirth, and that's the the tragic thing about about a rebirth. Um, is that it, it it does require a death. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Thank um, you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, it's It's been a pleasure. Thank you for kind of opening that, or I should say pulling back the curtain for us a little bit. Again, very few people know what's going on. And it's probably a treat for you to have been there and heard firsthand from Rachel, essentially, um, right, about right. her her involvement. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.